Hello and welcome to the journalism.co.uk podcast, a show where we bring you insights from media industry experts to help journalists do their jobs better. I'm your host, Jacob Granger. Today, we'll be talking about executing that business idea that's been sitting on the shelf. This week, we're joined by Ye Hong Zhu, longtime savvy entrepreneur, formerly a Forbes business writer, now turned CEO and founder of Zet, a US-based news subscription bundle platform. If you will, it's a Netflix for news, but with a slight twist. Ye Hong started her business when it dawned on her that the programmatic advertising model was fundamentally flawed. Cramming ads into magazines simply made for a bad user experience. That might sound familiar to those in the local news arena. So she came up with an alternative in Zet, which is now quickly gathering pace. Today, we talk about developing your inner entrepreneur, from getting the ball moving with your ideas to seeking venture capital investment. And here's an interesting insight. It's actually a good time for new startups to start pitching. That's all coming up, so don't go anywhere. Yay Hong, welcome to the journalism.co.uk podcast. Thanks ever so much for coming onto the show. Thank you so much for having me, Jacob. A lot of people will know you as the founder and CEO of Zet Media, but perhaps one thing they don't know about you is that you've got this ambitious target of visiting one country per year until the day you die. Would you tell us a little bit more about uh, this story, please? Yeah, of course. I mean, I would hardly call it ambitious. I think one country a year is pretty manageable. Um, It only becomes an ambitious target when you fall behind. Um, The catalyst for my one country a year motivation was really that I loved traveling ever since I was young. I didn't get an opportunity to do so when I was very young. And so I always had this wanderlust. Uh, I grew up in Georgia for most of my life and so kind of lived in the suburbs a lot. And I promised myself that, you know, one day when I'm all grown up, I'm going to see the world and I'm going to travel and see everything the world has to offer. And 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 for the record, you're 32 countries in 27 years, right? Um, Something like that. Yeah. Although I also count uh, sovereign nations. Yeah, I would count like Monaco, even though that's more of a principality. So loose definition there on, on country, right? Yeah. Fair enough. And, where, and just finally then, where's next on your bucket list to go? Uh, I think I'm still narrowing down which country in Africa, but I think Africa is the next destination. So we'll see. Yeah, maybe like uh, Cape Town, South Africa or somewhere else. Let's talk about what you're doing right now as as founder and CEO of Zet and kind of your path and journey to that position. You started out as a business writer for Forbes. Um, Tell us about that transition from journalist to CEO. What made you make that switch? Sure. So ever since I was young, I've always been pretty entrepreneurially minded. Um, When I was in high school, I was, you know, selling like custom commission portraits to my my friends for money. Right. And in college, I had started a college admissions consulting company that helped high school students apply to colleges, um, especially top schools. While you were studying? Yeah. While I was a student in my dorm. Nice. It was a classic like side hustle. Well, it actually quickly became my main thing. There is a point at which I considered dropping out because I was so busy with my business that I didn't have time to focus on on university. <laughs> um, but I eventually made the decision to prioritize my degree to graduate, and then I promised myself that I would always start another business afterwards. And so that's kind of the thread of entrepreneurship. Um, I've always been, I would say, a leader in terms of leading school activities, um, you know, leading initiatives in my life. 
um, I was the older sister growing up, so of course I uh, had to take responsibility and kind of pave the path. Uh, we're also a first-generation immigrant family, so a lot of things in my life I had to basically lead, right? On the other side, um, my mother was a journalist, and so growing up I always really appreciated the complexities of media. I was always fascinated and curious about it, and so I always loved to write, and I found it to be very therapeutic, and I wanted to make sure that the stories that I cared about had amplification in the broader world. And that's why I also pursued a path of journalism. In fact, I wrote a lot throughout college. Uh, I was a humanities major, actually a philosophy and government major. So you can imagine that I was writing, uh, you know, for four academic years. Yeah, for sure. And then, of course, on the side, I would be writing for all the student publications I could get my hands on, from the Harvard Crimson to the Harvard Political Review to her campus. My writing would get syndicated in national outlets, um, like the Huffington Post, Business Insider, Slate Magazine. Yeah. Through my portfolio of work, I landed my gig at Forbes Magazine. Which must have been a dream job, really, like in terms of business, the entrepreneurial mindset and, and journalism. That, feel, that feels like the perfect marriage. Of course, yeah. Because, mm. like I said, I always had these two threads in my life of writing, of business. And so business reporting was fascinating. Um, and my beat at Forbes was that I was reporting on public company trends, specifically in the retail and consumer sector um, and technology as well. And so I was analyzing, you know, the uh, SEC stock uh, reports and uh, calling analysts and talking to CEOs. Um, it was an exciting time. Um, and one of the things that I realized from that was that quickly I became curious about the business model of journalism itself. And so I turned my analytical mindset on, well, I wonder how media is making money. I wonder how money is exchanging hands and how that actually impacts me and my payroll, uh, my salary, and everybody else's in the industry. And that's when I started getting very curious about the future of media. Right, super. There's there's loads of things that come to mind there, but I guess one of the things I would like to pick up on is in speaking to so many industry leaders and CEOs during that time, you know, what kind of wisdom did you just pick up naturally through speaking to those people? Is there anything that really stuck with you from, from that role that maybe you know, was useful moving forward in your career? Um, well, one thing that surprised me was how accessible these people were. Uh, obviously, they were quite busy. Um, for example, I talked to the CEO of Ikea. Because I was a journalist at Forbes, I had access to the types of individuals that maybe a normal blogger or, you know, a writer at a publication that doesn't have as big of a brand name wouldn't necessarily have. And so one thing that I had as an insight just from speaking to these people was, wow, um, journalists get a lot of access, right? And that's really, that's really powerful because the average person maybe doesn't get the opportunity to speak directly to someone who's in a position of power. And so I had to always be very thoughtful about what questions I actually asked to make sure I got the best information for the general public. I suppose, you know, when you're thinking about how journalism is funded, was Zet, I mean, what we're going to speak about today is quite interesting, but was this always your plan to, to launch Zet, even though maybe by that point it wasn't quite defined? Or did you have a vision at that time is, is kind of what I'm getting at? I did. Um, at the time I was working for Forbes, the magazine was ad-supported. So uh, this had a lot of downstream effects on actual writing. For example, my articles would get split up into three, four pages, and each page would have like seven ads on it, right? Mm. And, um, you'd have to click through each of the different pages to finish reading the article 
And by the end, you had maybe 21 ads that you had to kind of wade through if you didn't have ad block. And I remember thinking, why do we have so many ads on the page? It makes it very difficult to read the article, right? And uh, I think my editor told me, well, it's because we don't make enough money per ad, so we have to stuff a page full of ads. It was that moment, um, especially when I dug a little bit deeper into the programmatic advertising model, that I realized that most national publishers were not making enough money on ads alone to sustain an entire newsroom. Of course, ads are a huge kind of portion of the revenue that you know a lot of companies, uh, especially digital websites um, in general, pull in. However, uh, in the case of a newsroom specifically, this was during a time when print subscriptions were dramatically declining and digital ads alone were not able to make up the delta. And so I knew at that point in time, this was back in 2016, I understood that, oh, ads aren't going to be able to sustain the industry forever. Of course, subscriptions are going to be the next obvious move, right? Not only do you have higher lifetime value, but you have a closer relationship with your consumer. You can turn out more quality content instead of clickbait. Um, You have recurring revenue, which is really important for newsrooms because you're paying costs out on a recurring basis. And so all of these factors pointed to subscription paywalls, which are now very, very common, right? They've basically exploded in terms of popularity <laughs> among journalism outlets. And so when I, when I realized that, when I thought about the future of journalism, my first thought was, oh, well, how are people going to navigate the internet if everything is paywalled? The average consumer can't afford to subscribe to hundreds or thousands of outlets. In fact, they wouldn't be able to read those outlets enough to justify the expense, nor would they want to put their credit card down that many times, right? We would basically be living in a world in which access to information was gated at every turn. And then the thought that I had next, and this is so funny, I remember distinctly thinking this, I was like, oh, I know, there's going to be a startup that's going to have a Netflix for news or Spotify for news model. I'm going to read about it any minute now. Maybe tomorrow they're going to come out with like $10 million in funding. This is a solved problem. I'm just going to be the first user to use it. So I did have the idea for that way back when, but I always thought that someone was going to beat me to it until um, you know another year passed and another year passed. And then suddenly it's 2020 and I had left my job at Twitter where I, I was working as a consumer product manager. And I was like, what about that idea that I had four years ago? Sitting on the shelf still, yeah. No one's done it yet. I'm so passionate about this industry. I've been wanting to make an impact to change, right, how information flow is actually handled. Mm -hmm. I think I've got to be the change I want to see in the world. So Yehong's answer here is unexpectedly relevant to us in the UK right now. Reach PLC, a major local news group in the UK, has come under fire for announcing yet more job layoffs, citing an online economy recession. Only, it's been pointed out that the issue might actually be the business model. Esther Kezia Thorpe wrote an explosive piece in Media Voices this week laying bare the issue, that news organisations cannot expect loyalty and attention if the model is driven in pursuit of clickbait content and cramming web pages with ads to the point where they are borderline unusable. Thinking back to Ye Hong's answer, she identified a similar issue in Forbes, where the ad model was compromising the user experience. So she thought of a solution, the Netflix for news model, but sat on it for too long instead of taking the leap. We need lots of new business ideas across the news sector, and we are starting to see real alternatives, but they are few and far between. If you have an old gem of an idea gathering dust, 
now might be the time to go back to it. Let's find out now how Ye Hong took her vision for Zet from conception to execution. The short answer is to leverage everything in your past. Every piece of my background that I had prepared prior to starting Zet actually came into play. Um, what did I? What do I mean by that? Well, firstly, it wasn't my first time starting a company. Like I said, when I was in college, when I was a freshman, I had to figure out how to recruit people, how to like put an idea into action, how to uh, provide services to clients and market them. And so I had the basic framework in my head for, okay, so this is what I need to do. I also had experience in a number of industries that were extremely relevant to the idea that I wanted to pursue, right? So uh, as again, as an undergrad, I had interned at a venture capital firm. And so I understood, at least at a high level, how venture capital worked as an industry. I wanted to start a venture-backed company, right? Because I wanted to get external investments from investors and I wanted to understand how the entire model worked uh, on a venture scale because I figured that was the fastest way to have exponential growth and to make sure that we hit you know, as many people uh, as possible with our model. And then finally, um, in my role as a product manager at Twitter, it was a software company. It's also a media company in many respects, as a lot of news breaks on Twitter these days. Well, it's a publishing company ultimately, isn't it? Exactly, exactly. And so I was on the front lines of that, and I saw um, how product decisions were made. I worked with designers and engineers day in and day out to ship features to millions or even billions of users. And through that process, I actually learned, okay, Keep everything very, very simple. When you're working on a consumer product, there's a lot of confusion. There's a lot of people who won't know how to use any given feature that you ship. So make sure that whatever you ship is extremely simple. And of course, I knew the product development cycle from working with engineering. And I understood what went into beautiful design. And so I took all of these pieces from my life, journalism, venture capital, um, product at a tech company, and I was able to utilize these skills, even, even business and entrepreneurship, I was able to weave these skills into the beginning stages of starting my company. So I wasn't starting from scratch. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating to see how all of those different threads are started to fuse together. And you can you can really see how, how things have got to where they are. But on that point about keeping things simple and keeping things agile, like this is something that a lot of CEOs kind of say. Was there anything you ha did have to dial back quite specifically and say, right, no, let's let's try and keep this simple. Let's try and keep this, you know, agile. Yes. So I, again, perhaps being a business analyst or business reporter or philosophy major, I tend to dive very deeply into anything that I do. And so I remember in the early stages of Zed, I was like, doing market research, I was writing these long one-pagers, two-pagers that turned into kind of ten-pagers, business plans and all the stuff was very, very thorough. At, and then at some point I realized, oh, I actually have to like, instead of writing a ten-page essay, I need to write a one-page summary. I need to document my learnings from this one thing and move on because I don't have time to actually dive so deeply into every single facet of the business. I have to kind of make sure that the velocity and that the pace of movement was there instead of being a perfectionist and kind of overanalyzing every little thing like I was trained to do over my career. Um, and that was, you know, a moment of unlearning that was very significant for me because as soon as I unlearned that, oh, everything needs to be perfect, I was able to move a lot faster. And so the chances of success for the company actually went up dramatically. And that's interesting because I think it's in a, in, most journalists nature to want to be 
that might be your tendency as a germist to go, right, I'm going to do this. We need to cover all of our bases here and drill really deep into this, make sure everything is done perfectly. It's different from the founder's perspective. Well, as a journalist, I mean, I would say even as a journalist, it's important to be fast because when you're writing about breaking news, if you take too long on the article, it's no longer breaking anymore, right? Mm. But um, I do agree that as journalists, as writers, we're graded on perfection, right? An editor goes to our piece. If we have too many spelling errors, too many factual errors, we're not doing our job. Whereas as as a startup founder, as long as you get the main things right, everything else you can let fall and you can still be okay because your performance depends on how well you execute, not necessarily how well you analyze. And also who you surround yourself with as well as the company, right? Like your network of people around you is super important. You know, your success will be completely dependent on on your team um, to some extent, but also in the very beginning stages of a company, you don't necessarily have a team, right? So that's the other tough part, which was that Throughout my career, I've always been in environments where I had resources at my fingertips. If I was a journalist, I had an editor who then had an editor himself or herself. If I was in tech, I had a senior product manager, you know, senior leadership, stakeholders, management, guardrails for what I could do, what I couldn't do. Mm-hmm. But of course, at my own company, I didn't have any of those things. I didn't even have structure, right? So a lot of decisions were up to me, and I had to make them quickly and accurately in order to graduate to the next cycle. Mm. So let's talk about Zet now. Let's kind of move on to that. Netflix for News is kind of a good way of thinking of it, but it is a subscription bundle platform that that includes lots of different clients. So one person pays and gets access to various different news sources. That's about right. Yeah, pretty much. Um, So it's a two-sided marketplace. On the supply side, we partner with all the premium newspapers and magazines that you want to read. So right now we work with over 100 publishers, including Forbes, the Miami Herald, the Sacramento Bee, New Scientist, Harrods, and many others. And we're hoping to bring on a, a lot of big names as well in the next year, so stay tuned. Cool. I mean, I understand the appeal from the audience side, but how do you make this worthwhile for the publishers? For sure. So for every publisher, we negotiate um, a licensing deal that has a, a pretty lucrative revenue share attached to that. So to give you an example, Apple News Plus has the same model that we're utilizing where they have something like a 50-50 rev share with the major publishers that they work with. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have something very similar where for every, let's say, for every 30 articles you read, if you're paying us $10 a month for a subscription, we would pay out the publisher $5 if it was a 50-50 rev share. And what's unique about Zet then? What makes you what makes Zet Zet? What makes us Zet is that, as I mentioned before, it's been a long time since this was even brought to market in a serious way. I would say the last serious attempt was Texture, which you know established all these partnership deals. They were able to uh, make the software uh, on your app, on an app that could allow users to access magazines and newspapers behind the paywall. But they were acquired by Apple uh, to create Apple News Plus. And so a lot of the earlier attempts in the market were snapped up quite quickly by kind of bigger players and so there, it's been a, a very long time since there's been true competition in the space and true access. And we're now graduating into a time where paywalls are everywhere. And so the average consumer of news doesn't know where to turn and doesn't have a way to easily access the news that they want at an affordable price. And so I would say that's how we're distinct and differentiated. The obvious question there, of course, is what stops you from being snapped up? 
Uh, I mean, there's obviously a lot of players that would be interested in acquiring a company like ours, right? That was definitely factored into my consideration when I was starting it. I was like, oh, you know, what are the odds that all of the fang companies would have the same interest in acquiring uh, the same startup? Uh, it's pretty rare for other, you know, companies in different industries. But just to give you an example, whether you're Facebook or Google or Netflix or Apple or Amazon, um, I think they would all have a pretty rational reason, right, to acquire a news tech company that allows them to expand um, their empire into um, media. Because uh, in some sense, at least when you think about the Googles of the world, the Facebooks of the world, even the Twitters, they are a media company at heart. They might not produce the content themselves, but they certainly syndicate, they certainly rank, they certainly you know, structure into a news feed uh, other content from other providers, including journalists. And and are you just focused in North America right now, or are you looking international as well? So our focus is America for the time being, but honestly, we can expand into any English-speaking uh, domain because uh, right now we're working with English-speaking publishers, and so anywhere that you know uh, speaks English is is our oyster. And then in the future, uh, as we think more about internationalization, we can expand into different languages as well because news can often be very uh, geographically based and so let's say we wanted to expand into france we would have to snap up all the french publishers uh, as well how far along was that in the business plan though um it depends so if we're able to hit product market fit quickly um we can expand faster uh, as our phase two but if it takes us longer then obviously we're going to focus on uh, the u.s market first um and then expand a little bit later so Quick recap, if you have a business idea, keep it simple. Execution takes priority over analysis. We as journalists love to overanalyze, but in a business, we just need to get the ball moving. Consider all of your options, experiences from the past and old networks you can tap into. All of that will be rich inspiration and expertise for your business plan. And as we discuss next, investment can be key. Zet secured a $1.7 million pre-seed round of investment in 2021, which took it to its first 100 publisher deals, 10 core team members, and the launch of its beta product, which is now on the market. That went a long way to proof of concept and market fit. The company is now actively raising for its next seed round to plot its next development. Ye Hong is also an angel investor into small companies. So with all of her hats on, business journalist, media startup founder and angel investor, we talk about the state of play for gaining investment for new startups. You might be surprised to learn, it's not all doom and gloom. In general, it's hard to get investment for, for any startup. Um, news in general, as a vertical, has been a very underinvested in space. Um, underinvested, uh, say, relative to music, for example, or even to movies or entertainment, right? In the spectrum of media to entertainment, there are some verticals that are more popular and some that are a little less. That being said, I do think that now is a very smart time to invest in news. I'm sure you've been following um, the Silicon Valley Bank developments. I'm sure you've been following the recent stock market developments over the past six months or so. Of course, anytime there are developments, what do we do? We read the news. We follow, we follow along on the news, right? And so that's the interesting part about uh, a vertical like the news industry, which is that inherently it has properties of anti-fragility. Meaning? Of course. So what that means is that anytime there's chaos in the market or anytime there's a lot of instability, 
news readership typically actually goes up. News consumption goes up. Of course, during recessions, advertising revenue falls, which is why a lot of news companies do end up losing money. But uh, for premium outlets, subscription outlets, typically they even see uh, uptakes in kind of usage um, during you know crazy moments like a pandemic or during a crisis or during a recession. Russian war. Exactly. News consumption goes up. So um, that's something that's quite interesting for a lot of people. And especially as we're now increasingly remote, increasingly dependent on technology and digital sources of information to be connected to one another, it makes sense to invest in a platform which democratizes access to information across a huge variety of verticals, whether that's business news, technology news, cultural news, or more. Mm. That's interesting because, yes, um, interest in the news certainly does go up around these critical moments, but so does things like news avoidance. And, you know, there's a cost of living crisis. There's also you know, a, a deepening inability to pay for the news. Is none of that factored in then? It is factored in. I would say it depends on who you are. So, for example, um, if you're an enterprise customer, let's say you're a business like Goldman Sachs, right, or someone else, you actually have an incentive to buy more enterprise subscriptions to news because your knowledge workers have to be informed about what's going on. Right. That being said, if you're um, a single mother and you're struggling to pay the bills and it's too negative and you don't want to listen to the news or, or read the news, of course it makes sense for you to cut something like that from your budget, especially if it doesn't pertain to the areas that you work in. So I would say news avoidance is real, but it also highly depends on which sector you're working on or what your personal demographic is um, because some demographics can't avoid it yeah right so maybe if you're a b2b b2c company actually it's not such a bad idea to be looking for investment at these critical moments for of, of the news because those companies are looking for wider um, subscription deals for their companies that's what i'm sensing from your answer exactly um the interesting thing about news that transcends a lot of other verticals is that it's not just a strictly personal expense so you and I as consumers, of course, we have personal interest in buying a premium news subscription or account. And, you know, I definitely will have things I want to read on a personal level. But also you and I as knowledge workers, um, there's reasons why professionally we have to read the news, right? In my case, I need to keep up to date with my industry. I need to keep up to date with venture financings and announcements. In your case, it's literally your job to keep up to date with the news. So you kind of have to do so. Do you work with a lot of unis and educational uh, enterprises? We don't yet, but that's the next stage of our growth and development in our go-to-market strategy. Nice. Something definitely to keep an eye on. Um, kind of back to the conversation around you know, investment. When it comes to actually getting investment for a new startup, what do investors really look for? What's going to help? I think they look for a lot of different signs of traction. For example, they look for what do publishers think of this, right? And having any kind of publisher deal is a great indication that publishers are willing to play ball, right? They also look for, you know, what are the economics of this? Can news really make money, right? Can media make money? And so having our financial model available is really helpful for them to actually work through the economics on their own time. Um, they might also ask, well, what does willingness to pay look like, right? Do consumers actually pay for news? Um, how many consumers would pay for news? And so for a uh, question like that, we would actually turn to market research, um, Yes, in fact, uh, about one in five Americans actually currently pay for news. Most likely they're paying for one or two subscriptions, most likely the New York Times, right? So in terms of news diversification, there's a lot of interest in reading other publications, 
but willingness to pay might be there, but there's untapped opportunity in the market to actually have an all, like all access subscription like that. Um, and we think this is uh, the way to go. And so these are an example of some investor questions that can be asked. Hmm. That's super helpful. And, you know, in your personal experience of gaining investment for, for Zep, were there any really tough questions that you had to really think hard about answering? What were was, what was some of the curveballs? There were curveballs. Um, at this point in my journey as a founder, it's tough for an investor to come up with a truly curveball question because obviously I've been thinking about my business for, you know, almost three years now. Um, I, I would say in the beginning, one curveball question was, uh, how are you going to solve the cold start problem? The cold start problem is for any two-sided marketplace where you have uh, equal demands on supply side and demand side, how do you actually move the engine, right? Because without supply side, you can't get customers. Without customers, how do you get supply side? It's chicken and egg situation, right? Exactly. Classic chicken and egg problem. And at first, when you know partnerships with publishers were purely theoretical, I also had a hard time answering that because I, I figured, well, maybe we can just get a little bit of traction um, on both sides equally. The way that we ended up solving the cold start problem was by focusing on one side at a time. And in this case, the supply side we felt was the much more critical at risk side, right? Because if we couldn't get the publishers, there would be nothing to sell to consumers, right? Right. So you've concentrated on getting those signed up first to have something to market. Exactly. So if we concentrated on the publishers, eventually we'd have enough traction to get more publishers or to get consumers. Whereas if we focused on consumers, it'd be very difficult to market the idea or even the product without telling them which news publishers they could read. Interesting. Super interesting. Um, any parting advice for any listeners um, tuning in about gaining investment? What's, what's kind of your top tip? Um, it's hard to pick just one. I would say make sure that you're well connected and well capitalized prior to seeking investment because it can be a long process and you're going to need a lot of warm intros, at least if you're doing it in the traditional Silicon Valley pitching mode. Um, also make sure that you understand why you're getting rejected if you are and that you're working to improve your pitch over time and that you're you have like a fundraising mentor or that you have a group of peers who are able to help you with introductions that are able to help review your materials with you. And of course, make sure you're working on a venture investable business with a huge market, with a lot of potential. Um, and obviously that you're the type of founder that can dazzle uh, investors and, and have them say, well, out of a hundred pitches that I saw, this is the founder that I want to back. So those would be my my top kind of highlighted tips. Um, there's a lot more that goes into that as well. What's maybe one thing not to do then and what maybe causes a pitch to fall through? What's an absolute thing to avoid doing when seeking investment? Having too convoluted of a pitch. And so this is a very common mistake that I see across a lot of founders and a lot of companies. And that's also because I'm an angel investor as well, where half the time if I'm trying to read a cold email or, or a pitch deck, I don't actually understand fully what the company is doing. And so it takes probably half the time for me to just get to a basic level of comprehension um, rather than thinking, oh, what a great idea. Okay, what, what are the fundamentals and starting to dig into it? This is also a value uh, pillar that I have for my company, but always keep it simple. If you're in doubt, 
cut the buzzwords and try to explain your company as if you were explaining it to a seven-year-old right or your grandma that's the advice we always get as journalists right explain explain the story to our grandma that's something we're taught in journalism school at least in the uk that's that sticks out in my mind and those ideas around being succinct with your mission you know getting to the point um, should come naturally to journalists finally then what's next for zet what can we expect to see from you guys soon world domination (laughs) (laughs) no realistically come on i think that is realistic well, next steps for Zet are going to be figuring out the demand side. Like I told you, supply side was the first challenge, right? How do we get the initial ball rolling with publishers? And of course, we're going to keep adding more and more publishers to our roster. But now we have a playbook for how do we get publisher deals? How do we get publishers excited? And how can we be good long-term partners for the publishers we want to work with? And so when I, what I mean by world domination is that if you have both the supply side and the demand side, You've got a fully working two-sided marketplace and very little can stop you after that. To use your analogy, you've got a working engine then. Exactly. You've got horsepower. Um, And I think those are the things that move markets. And that's why entrepreneurship is exciting. Because once you cross that threshold of product market fit, and once the product starts moving itself, it turns into a, a movement, right? And that's how it actually changes user behavior, starts shifting the way people consume information, And then more and more, you're going to see larger impact in the market. Awesome. Well, wishing you all the best with it, Yeh Hong. Um, Stay in touch with it, okay? Thank you so much, Jacob. My thanks to Yeh Hong for this insightful conversation. Don't underestimate the power and skills you have as a journalist. That would be my big takeaway. We can all obsess about the state of the news funding model, but we also have the power to provide an alternative. Use your past experiences to plot a vision. Keep your model simple and nimble, And think about how to ignite your engine as a business. What do you need first, readers or clients? Solve one first and the other one will follow. What's your big idea? Let me know. I'm on Twitter at JPG Journalism or email me on jacob at journalism.co.uk. You can also check out all of our other episodes on all your usual podcast platforms, SoundCloud, Spotify and Apple Podcasts by searching and subscribing to the journalism.co.uk podcast. But that's all we have time for this week. I've been your host, Jacob Granger. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time.